Hi everyone, Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer Magazines. Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs, sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. Today's conversation features Michael Horsch of Horsch Farm Equipment, who traveled from Bavaria, Germany, to sit with us on the first official day at his demo farm in Downs, Illinois, which featured presentations and demos for top dealers and VIP farmers. Previously operated by Bex Hybrids, Horsch recently took over the farm as one of its education centers. Michael had just crossed the Atlantic when we mic'd him up for the interview in the farm manager's office, yet there were no signs of jet lag as we sat and talked during a conversation that was still going strong as midnight approached. I will admit he talked more about his 55,000 acre farm and personal farming philosophy than he did about his fast-growing manufacturing company. But we managed to size things down to what I think will be a crisp and informative podcast for you. I'd met Michael at, at some of the big farm shows previously, and I've also visited their brand new plant in Mapleton, North Dakota a couple of times now. But I also learned a lot through this interview about things I didn't realize about this manufacturer's global presence, which now includes worldwide sales of $600 million and 2,000 employees, and also how the company intends to quadruple its North American market penetration to 100 million in just a few short years. In today's podcast, you'll hear of Michael Horsch's one-year stint in the U.S. as a teen, his novel innovations that he discovered no one wanted, and how the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 is the only reason this reluctant farm equipment manufacturer is still around today. And of course, how buying the farm in Illinois has now fulfilled a dream of his that goes back nearly 40 years. So let's get started our How We Did It Conversations podcast with Michael Horsch of German farm equipment manufacturer Horsch Farm Equipment. Tell me what Horsch Farm Equipment is all about. Hmm. Well, first of all, uh, we're not really a farm machining manufacturer. We don't see ourselves like that. Myself, I'm a farmer. I'm a classic farm boy, and all I wanted to do all, all my life is farming. I just ended up basically going, doing a detour into farm machinery manufacturing, basically to, to make some money to, to become a farmer. This is what's one of the driving things behind our business today. Never wanted to be as big as we are today, so it was not intended. So that's probably one of the closest, the closest uh, answer I can give you when somebody asks me what, what are we about. The other, the other answer we give is since our main background is farming, uh, where we come from, and where, that's, where our, that's where our passion is, obviously we seem to be more solution driven, more uh, challenges driven, like any other shoreline manufacturer in the industry. Uh, and also because we travel, we are scattered out all over the world so much. You know, we are in all in all, all main farming areas uh, where large acre farming is taking place, uh, whether it's South America, uh, North America, um, Australia. But most of our business is obviously Eastern Europe and Western Europe, yeah. and every every area, you, every every climate zone, every every culture, and you have different challenges, and uh, so that means you have to adapt to those challenges. And first of all, we're interested in the challenges before we look at what we we offer in terms of equipment. I've seen some of the the story about you coming over as a teenager, but mm. tell us that history of coming over and then what you took back to, to <laughs> Germany after that. First of all, you have to know I'm Mennonite, uh, and you know Mennonites 
there's lots of Mennonites here in the States too. And uh, we Mennonites are still a small group all over the world. Everybody knows everybody. And Mennonite has a, had a program, it's, it was a trainee program. And for me, that was the chance to come over here to the States in, in 78, 79, 80 on a Mennonite trainee program working on farms. And so, and this is what I used to come over here because that was the only way to, to actually ha stay here for at least a year and have a working permit. Uh, back in those days, there was no other way, otherwise you could only come for three months and that was it. So I used this as a way to, to, to come here to the States and uh, as a teenager, 18 years old, trying to find out what farming is like here in, in North America. I always dreamed about the, the big areas, the big farms of corn and soybeans in Iowa, Illinois and whatsoever. Uh, my father, by the way, also was a man I trainee in the late 50s. He always talked about this and showed me pictures from his stays in, in Nebraska and Iowa where he was as a trainee. And uh, uh, so that was my first chance actually to come here. I knew I was here before. With the idea of maybe I, maybe I could find a place to, to, to stay and, and, and to piece of land to farm and, and maybe become a farmer here in North America. That was basically a dream of an 18 year old that had four more brothers, that younger brothers, that also wanted to take over the home farm. So there was five of us, which obviously none of, it was clear that not, not all five of us would be able to get the home farm to take it over from, from our father. Yeah, that was the start of it. Actually, it was some, <laughs> some interesting coincidences. Uh, I had to go back in uh, late 79, I had to go back to, to, to Germany because my, my, what it called, my, my visa permit ran out and I had to actually uh, redo it from a German side to be able to come, out, come back and, and immigrate here. That was the intention. The problem was the German government didn't let me go out because I didn't do my, my service. In those days you still had to do your army service or I had to do a civil service instead. And so they said, until you haven't done your civil service, you will not get another permit to leave the country. And that basically uh, was the start of the company. <laughs> Oh. During my civil service, <laughs> uh, I was uh, didn't, I, I hated to do my civil service during the evenings. Uh, I was drawing up machinery and uh, starting to build no-till cedars. And the background of that is also something everybody, uh, you have to know. Also, you have to go back in, into the '60s uh, when my father, two of his brothers, and three of my father's cousins got into farming in the early '60s, and uh, they were able to gather a lot of land. That was right after the war, and uh, when everything was Germany was building up, and the industrial revolution was taking place, and all the farm labor was going into the industry, and there was no labor anymore, cheap labor uh, available anymore for farming, and there was large, uh, large, large in those days was two, three, five hundred acre farms, estate farms, ran by dukes and lords, you know, that had lots of labor, and their labor ran away. And so they didn't know how to run the farms and they were looking for a way either to rent it out or sell out the farm. And this was a chance of my father's, my, my, my father's and his family and brothers and cousins basically to take over quite a bit of land in the 60s and become crop farmers in a big, in a big way. Uh, big way. 1,000 acres, 1,200 acres. I mean, that was, that was big for us and we're in the 60s. And, um, but they rather quickly had to fig uh, found out that the old two-bottom plow and the 35 horsepower massive Ferguson tractor would not do it, um, uh, would not get you anywhere. <laughs> Plus the, some of the land my father farmed where I grew up, on, the first farm I grew up on was just maybe a 
four inches or five inches of topsoil and the rest was rock you know so I, I, I learned driving a tractor with a five-year-old uh, driving a tractor pulling a trailer was where guys were walking behind and picking up rocks and throwing it in a trailer you know and so obviously there was also a need for it to figure figure something else out than just plowing the thing up other than that becoming uh, and, and also on top of that becoming more more efficient and so um, it was actually our family that started looking, looking into uh, uh, what we call a min-till, no-till uh, farming system uh, where there was no sample for that. You know? no, there was well, this, the scientists and the local agricultural institutes and, and, the, and the neighbors said, this, what, what you want to do is never, ever going to work. You know? what, what year would that have been? Uh, 64, 65, 66. That's, so be, that's, before it's even happening over here in the yeah, States, too. But we were, it was just our family approach, you know, so they tried it out themselves. I mean, we still have, uh, on my home farm, or that's not the farm I grew up on. That's the second farm my father bought uh, in 68. Uh, well, that one, the, the day they took it over, he stopped plowing that farm. So we still have land that's over 50 years not being plowed, which you, you Americans laugh at it. But where I come from, this is where the plow was not really necessarily invented, but this is basically with a, if you, if you hadn't plowed up your land by the end of, uh, by the end of October, it was insane, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe still is in some ways today, not quite. Myself, my brothers and cousins, we were basically injected with this mint-till, no-till, uh, pioneer spirit from our fathers and uncles Sundays after church, you know, we walked fields with a spade and with my uncle or father and, and, and dug holes and looked at it and, and uh, learned how soil changes and uh, earthworm population went up and water infiltration went up and so on and so on and issues with weeds and, and so on and so on, how to deal with it. And so we learned it, we learned it basically by within the family, by learning from, from fathers and uncles and decide if, if we, we, one day if we're going to start farming, this is what we're going to, going to, going to continue. Problem always was that there was no machinery available. So we always had to have special machinery being built, one-offs from machine manufacturers or built. And then by the time we end up uh, in our yard, we start cutting it up ourselves and re rebuilding it with railroad ties and whatsever. And, and I was hated by my father. He was, he was rough on machinery, you know, and, and rebuilding it. He always worked though. But he was gas axe and, and cutting stuff up and tying welding railroad ties to it and whatsoever and changing openers and uh, I always hated it because then the nice piece of machinery with paint on it cut up and, and didn't put paint on back on it again. So got some ideas about when I'm going to build my own machinery I'm going to make it nice and tidy and work it out first. So yes there was some drive here and because I was the oldest not very good in school either. School decided that didn't need me anymore pretty soon after high school, you know, so I just dropped out and here I went, took this man I trainee program coming to the States as a as a way to just leave the country and get out of it. And then when I came back, I always had this in mind that uh, I'm going to build my own no-till cedar, you know, which obviously was not, which was also enforced by my father and uncles. They always said, they always said well, somebody's got to figure that out. We're going to have to find a way how we lift up the straw, place the seed underneath, and then put the straw back on top, you know. So they, this thing I was keep hearing from them, you know, and then and, and watching when they were talking, listening when they were talking, and and basically starting to think, 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 and 
when I came back from the States and didn't like much to fulfill my civil service, even though I had to do it. During evenings, I started doing simple drawings and went out in the workshop and started putting some steel together. And when my father and uncles found out that I'm on something, they said, well, get on, get on, get on, build, get it done. Here's some money if you need it, you know, because I built me also one, built me also one, you know. This is the spirit in our family. The spirit in our family is if somebody has a good idea and nobody nobody tells tells you you shouldn't do it, not going to work, it's always the other way around, you know. Hey, just emphasize, you know, just do it, do it, do it. So it was basically a strong family support there of somebody, oh, now finally is taking this, taking this thing on and uh, figuring something out because we always need somebody who really puts his brain into it and, and, and starts to figuring out because so far we've always built crude stuff. You know, my uncle built crude stuff, my father built crude stuff, or had it built and so on. It worked, but it was not satisfying. So anyway, this, with this family support, both financially and spiritually, yeah, point of view, that basically was then uh, the start of the horse machine company. It was with the exactor I, line? The seed exactor. This was 81, I built my first seed exactor. In 80, I kind of had the thing going. And in 81, I built the first seed exactor for my father. And then basically every three, four weeks, I had to build another one for another uncle, for another uncle, because they all, the whole family came together and said, build me also one. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll, we'll help you to make it work. It was just this, this common thing of, of helping each other and making sure that, that if somebody, if a young guy, I was 21 years old when I did that, when I built my first machine, uh, they would say, hey, if this works, this, this is what we need. There's a rotorator base with a seating bar underneath and his own uh, machine, which we first built. It's a no-till seater. Maximum, we would call it a maximum disturbance no-till seater. <laughs> so disturbance in those days wasn't, wasn't quite a, we actually had to, we, the way we wanted to place seed, obviously we're not in a corn and bean country where I come grew up. It's mainly wheat, wheat country, winter wheat country. Uh, so instead of, putting seed down in rows, we wanted to scatter it. You know, this was a, a solid seeding uh, system. No rows, but uh, uh, with no contact with trash. Because I always had the problem when we had too much residue in contact with the seed. The seed, while it was rotting, it was basically disturbing the small seedling with the root system to, to, to grow without having some, tox without, with, uh, without having some toxic issues. Yeah. That was a start, the unintended Intended start <laughs> because for me it was basically just a jumping port to try to make some money to eventually mm -hmm. just leave the country, buy a piece of land maybe here in North America or whatever, um, and become a farmer. And um, as I start keep building a few machines uh, over the years, and uh, then I realized, well, maybe this is a way to to stick a little bit longer at it and make and try to make a little uh, try to make actually real money. So I had a better chance to get into farming in a bigger way. Then obviously I got stuck with lots of uh, debts and commitments and, and so on, where the dream of becoming a farmer would just drift away more and more and more. And because I was stuck with the business. You know? And um, then in 84, we officially start a horse company, horse machining company. Uh, before that, our family had a cooperative, a horse cooperative, where they had a large feed business and egg business with uh, chicken and laying birds. Yeah. And um, that, that business uh, called Horse OHG uh, was ran by one of my uncles. 
And he said, okay, as long as you keep this thing in this, uh, going the way it is, we're going to help you to finance. We're going to help. We're going to finance your steel. We're going to finance your, your components you want to buy. And uh, you want to sell something within the family. We're all just going to do the, the legal work and, the, the, and so on within this cooperative. But they eventually got too big and then they said, well, you better start your own. That was when uh, the company was formed in 1984. But actually, it's older. Today, if we go back, it's 37 years ago I started the business, really. So you got into manufacturing kind of accidental or, or reluctant because your dream was to farm. Exactly. I, I was looking at your numbers coming in, 2,000 employees. I mean, something really big took on here more than you had ever dreamed of? You see, as I say, there was many things that happened that haven't been planned or haven't been part of, of your big picture where, where you want to take something. Another piece of my story in the 80s, you have to understand that if you hadn't, if you hadn't plowed up your land uh, by the end of October, it was insane. So now me trying to, as a young 21-year-old trying to sell, first of all, sold equipment to family, family is big, uh, thought I got the thing. I got it made, you know, I got, a, I got a system where I can go out and sell other farmers, make them stop plowing and sell them this piece of no-till seer and teach them how to do it and this, this is the way to do it. It didn't take me very long to find out that I had something nobody wanted. So, so for me in the 80s, it was very hard to actually uh, keep that business going unless I, uh, and that's what I had to do, I figured out a new way of marketing. And the marketing was with a spade. So what I did is, by the time my family, they all had their, their machine, you know, I had to learn that I could not go out and, and talk to farmers and tell them, here, this is what I got, and you better stop plowing. The guy would look at me and say, you're 22, 23 years old, and you, haven't got, you have no degree, no, no business degree, no farming degree, and you tell me what farming should be like? No, get, get lost, get out of here. Uh, so they wouldn't believe me. So what I had to do is I had to go far away from home, <laughs> find larger op larger farms uh, that had s s hard, you know, heavy soils or soils with lots of rocks and stones on that had already a problem with plowing, you know, and efficiencies, you know, and then invited them to come. And then when they come to our farm or my uncle's farm, what I did is I took the spade out and together with my father and together with my uncle, we walked the fields. So basically we dug holes and showed them, okay, you know, look, look what happens after 15 or 20 years when you don't plow. You know, the soil structure changes, the earthworm population goes up and soil gets more active and water infiltration goes up and so on and so on. Look at the yields. The yields are not any worse uh, than plowing. They actually, you can improve them. If, it's not as easy, but you have to. You can improve them, uh, and you have to watch this. You have to watch that. So we kind of basically walked with a spade. We started uh, selling the idea, not machinery, just the idea. And it was a. It took it took ages to bring them. They went back and forth and came back and looked at it again in the springtime and in the in the in the summertime, and then eventually the guys start turning around and said, "Hey, now I've made up my mind. What your father or your uncle does, I also want to." Uh, uh, implement that on my farm and then he started talking about now I also need a piece of equipment so actually instead of selling equipment we sold a, we sold them a, 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 new, a different way of a way of different way of farming and I call this educational marketing in a little in a way this is what we're trying to do here <laughs> with the hounds you see this is all I did all my life 
And this is probably why we're so different to any other small short line manufacturer in the world uh, dealing with uh, seeding and tillage equipment. We're, we're marketing driven and we are educational marketing driven. And all we did is ever since the last 35 years, we scaled selling with a spade, we scaled it. That's basically what we've done. We have farms all over now. We have farms in Czech Republic, in Germany, in France, and, and here and now, here we bought this, this small farm here in, in North America here yet. Uh, and then we have also partnership farms in Ukraine and Russia and so on. Now we're working on one in Brazil, where we actually, all, all those farms we're using as, 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 uh, as cropping system centers, like you may call them, you know, uh, and trying to develop new ideas about how, in regional ideas, you know, I cannot just take, take ideas from, from what I do in Germany. Even within Germany, what I do in, on our German farm, I can't take to France. In France, I have to do, we have to look at, uh, because of different rotations, different, different climates. Uh, so you have to look at a little bit different when you introduce new tillage methods and new certain rotations that are common there and what, how to improve it by with different, place, different ways of fertilizer placements or different ways of, of incorporating straw and so on and so on and so on. And also in a way we want a continuous research, practical research too. That's part of our marketing strategy as well. We're not, we're not competing with scientific research or with universities or other research organizations, but in a way we're trying to bring things together and uh, research together and make it practical, you know, pract the practical side. That's what we're interested in. The, the one thing you also have to understand is what happened in our part of the world was what happened in 1990. 1990 was the time was it you know you remember mm -hmm. when the wall came down you see where i where where my home farm is this is about half an hour away from the iron curtain iron curtain and for you americans this looking from the american point of view this was the end of the world which in a way it was till 1990 was the end of the world whether it was east germany czech republic or whatever we never went there we had no desire to go there because it was really an iron wall you know and it came down overnight, unexpected. And so all of a sudden, overnight, we had a huge access to large cooperative farms between, between 3,000 and 10,000 acres on average, you know, just right in our backyard. You know. those, those farms had never, ever had access to any Western equipment, never, ever. It was all Eastern European, Russian equipment, junk, real junk. I mean, junk, junk. Can't imagine what junk is, you know if you have to live on junk. And so these guys were desperate. They were desperate because they, when the wall came down, also for them, it was, it was something they could never believe. But then the thing they said, we want to get rid of junk. We, wanna, we want only machinery from the West. And so whoever ended up with them and told them what they had got, as long as it's painted nicely, they bought it. If one had known that this would ever happen, you could have gotten ready for it, you know? But nobody was ready for it. Mm -hmm. No, the big guys, no, the small guys. And so from 1990 on, uh, obviously, it's, um, that was basically... Till 1990, I was thinking a couple of times of giving up and yeah. basically stopping it. And there was not much to sell, really. <laughs> they couldn't sell the business, really, for what? How big was the company at 1990 prior to the wall? 1990, hmm. 1990, maybe 20, 20 people employed. 18 people employed, maybe. 
So we would just kind of break even during that? Time? Oh yeah, always breaking even, always. I was great in breaking even, but not making money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and again, if it wasn't the family financing me, bank would never give me a loan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably had a revenue of $2 million, $2 million in 1990. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, the wall came down. I get, what, what I wanted to pursue with you was where, where the money came from to gain access to the equipment. Well, when the wall came down, right away, uh, all those cooperative farms were pushed into, into privacy because the government pulled out, the communist governments pulled out. But the farms were sitting on land. They didn't necessarily own the land, but at least they had the right to farm it. Yeah. And they had lots of people working on the land, good people, people that were willing to also work for very little money, so just to continue. And so uh, if you had a good crop coming and could sell it for, good, for a good price, because then all of a sudden you could sell it for real money instead of this rubles or Deutschmark, East German Deutschmarks were more worth anything, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you just could survive for a year or two by basically uh, uh, basically paddling your way through, you know, and, and, and surviving your way through, uh, all of a sudden then uh, you had a good crop and sold it for a good price, you could start buying equipment, especially in East Germany. East Germany was the biggest growing market for us in, uh, in the first couple of years in Eastern Europe because East Germany had the West Germans had their buddies. The Czechoslovakians, they, they had no buddies. They had to basically uh, fight themselves, you know. So it took a little longer in Czech Republic, which was next to East Germany, mm -hmm. uh, for them to, 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 to survive and grow, grow their businesses. And then obviously not all the cooperative farms survived. Some of them gave up or, or went bust. And this is how we got into farming. Mm -hmm. So this is how I got into farming with my other brothers uh, in 1990. And then from there on, we also grew the farming business. Mm -hmm. Today we farm about 55,000 acres on top of that. We'll get back to the story of Michael Horsch in a moment, but first a quick word about sponsor Osmondson Manufacturing, which supported our time, travel, and production in bringing these stories of family farm equipment manufacturers to you. Osmondson is a leader in tillage tool business with a storied history of its own dating all the way back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. And now, back to more with Michael Horsch and the Horsch story. It seems to me that you have a lot of products overseas that our people here in the States don't know about yet. Because you've come with a, a couple, made big waves with the Joker and, and the Maestro and um, tell us what maybe the average American dealer might not know about the Horsch brand, the company. Well, first of all, we are seeding, planting, minimum tillage, and spraying. Those are our four core specialties. Yeah. And if it comes to North American standards, I mean, see, where we come from is from a large-scale operations. See, normal, most of our, my competitors in Western Europe are, come from a small, they, they deal with the, the majority of the equipment they build is for the small scale farmers. Where we come from, from the day one is from a larger scale farming, farming background, from minimum till and no till and from larger scale. So, so we come from a complete different perspective than everybody else comes from, 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 from Europe. You know? and, um, Again, if 1990 would never have happened, our business would probably never been uh, not existing today. 
And it was just because of all of a sudden Eastern Europe came open and all this, all, all Eastern Europe was about was large operation, large operations looking for new technology. Yeah. Nobody could have known that, that it was ever happen. Yeah. And so in those four areas, uh, we are technology driven. You know? uh, the R&D is, is basically controlled uh, by my brother and myself. Uh, we have about 120 engineers, a little more maybe. And um, they're all controlled by the two of us. From the very beginning, from the idea, from getting into details to a certain point, and, uh, and also the way we actually, into, we actually develop products is also interesting. You cannot compare us with others. Most of the products we develop, first of all, for ourselves, for our own farming, we have a need for something because we have a certain soil problem and a certain soil issue and we want to grow a different crop and oh, let's build, let's build equipment for it. Or we don't like the tillage we've done so far, we'd like to change it, so we'll build a product for it. We need a new planter, we build a new planter for ourselves. And so a lot of, and this is what I do a lot, um, two of my oldest sons now decide that they want to become farmers. So they're actually doing what I was wanting to do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, so they also involved in this is this type of development work and, um, and 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 we don't necessarily look for whether there's a market for it it's, it's the other way around and many products you see even from the products we bring here to North America uh, like the, our planter design uh, which is unique to the large planter design it's unique to the market not only here also to, to, to Eastern Europe or other parts of the world or South America where we also are taking it down to that's been developed only first for ourselves we never had an intention to build large planters yeah. uh, uh, get into the large planter business that we're number one in Europe now in Eastern Europe in, in, when I say large planters is anywhere from 40 foot to 60 foot bars you know uh, we're by far number one, which the dark green guys obviously don't like. But anyway, this is first of all where, where we are. And so that means that a lot of our products we have already available for Western and Eastern European markets. Quite a bit of, quite a, quite a bit of products both in seeding and tillage fit also this markets here. We have a factory up in North Dakota and uh, we have also some engineering up in North Dakota. So everything we sell here is not 100% come from, from Europe. It's built here with uh, um, 80% local content. Yeah? Yeah, that's where we are and adapted for those, for those markets here. Mm. But some of the basic designs come from Germany, yes. Mm. Uh, well, for instance, we were, we were the first ones bringing in the compact disc. Mm -hmm. You know, when the vertical tillage business started and then the, the next level was from vertical tillage was compact disc. We were the first ones and I right. think still by numbers, but probably have sold the most so far in, in North America. Now it's, You developed the market here with you well, guys. Helped. Let's put it this way, we helped to develop the market, mm -hmm. yeah. But now look around, how many different colors are around, you know, yes. lots of them, you know. So we've, we've done a few of those things also in Western Europe where we started some products and now everybody has, has a copy of it, which is good. Uh, it shows that we're not completely wrong mm -hmm. with what we, what we bring here and wait what, what will yet to come. You know? mm -hmm. Could you recap how you came into the United States and you'll that, go that, over that history? It's very simple. First of all, I had a, had a natural drive. As a young, as a, as a teenager, to always had a dream to to be actually wanted to f actually now I'm farming here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I actually become a farmer. So 37 years later, it, uh, 40 years later, the dream become true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way it's true. 
no, I, I must say, especially the, 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 the Midwest, I think I know it like the inside of my pocket, as I say, you know, as we say. I just like the countryside, the, the, the crops you guys grow, the farmers, the mentality, the people. Uh, and um, for over 40 years, um, um, I'm, I've built lots of friendships here. And, and I was always interested in what's going on here. And so there's a natural drive uh, for me. To, it's not It's not like you can't, I, I try to sell all over the world, but not be here. It's the other way around. Mm. <laughs> I started partnershiping with a small company called Anderson Machine in South Dakota. That's Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson, yeah. Uh, that partnership started uh, in... Uh, 93. 93, I started a small partnership uh, with Kevin Anderson, and from there I grew the business, to, first together with him, and then uh, he, he just retired and, and wanted to get out, and then uh, then we went on our own. Well, it was, it was a sl- slow phasing out. Uh, so the last five years, I would say, were, then, were more or less on our own. Okay. So when dealers first started dealers and farmers first started getting familiar with the horse brand would have been in the about 2000 actually kevin was was doing an opener for us which we which we built air seeders for eastern europe mm-hmm. and so we used his opener and together with him we modified the opener to make it fit the eastern european markets and actually the first product we built was 1998 99 something like this I said to Kevin, I want to build, bring air, the air seer technology also over here because at that time he only built uh, openers. Mm-hmm. So let's let's build complete air seers. And so there was right early 2000. Yeah, early 2000 was probably the, the the real start of it. Yeah, before it was only a partnership where I sourced components and then we brought technology over in early 2000. Yeah. Okay. And early 2000, were you selling? Through a we team. only had one product, which was a 60-foot uh, uh, air seeder. At that time, it was a big one with a 500 bushel cart, seat cart. It was a big air seeder in those days. And we only sold it, sold it in South and North Dakota. And Butler Egg was our, our, our sole only dealer, and which stayed on a, with us. I must say, Dan Butler was always a big believer in us. And he supported us through some real serious times, you know, where things weren't quite quite nice. He believed in us and his people. He believed in us. Well, there, there. A lot of them here tonight. A lot of them here tonight. But it was Dan Butler. It was Dan Butler. He just, I think, in those days, he's just taken over the business from his father. Mm-hmm. And so, on the farm machinery side, we were we were one of we were one of the um, one of the short lines he's taken on. Uh, and he, he personally, he personally took uh, took a strong interest in it. And um, I mean, we sold a few machines, five, ten machines a year, and so on. I mean, for a large machinery dealer like him, why should he actually care about a, a South Dakota and European farm machinery manufacturer uh, that has very very little, not, which is not much known? And he's helped us. He's helped us actually to to, to grow. Mm-hmm. And then, eventually, we, we we went out of we went out of North and South Dakota into Canada and South. And then, when we brought the planters in, when the planters we brought in five years ago. Well, first we brought the compact disc in. Till about two, 2010, till 2010, we had only one single product, which was an air seeder. We had obviously different working with us, which we mainly sold in North and South Dakota and a little bit in Kentucky and in Pacific Northwest and so on and, uh, and Western Canada. 
but 80% of the business was only with Butler. And then we brought the compact disc in, then we started bringing, growing into some other areas with more dealers. And then we brought the planters in, and that again helped us to grow, especially into the corn belt. This is how we've been able to expand our business, mm -hmm. huh? both in Western Canada and here in the corn belt. And then you know what happened, you know, 213 was a peak, and that free fall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> If anybody would have ever told me that there's a never-ending free fall, you know, <laughs> I would have not believed it, you know. Because <laughs> in my short life uh, of farm machinery history, uh, I have never expected a market to fall, to have a free fall for more than one year. And we had, um, had almost four years of free fall. Look at John Deere, John Deere's business. I mean, what did they, they went down from 7,000 combines to 3,000 combines or whatever, you know, and and tractors here in North America, and, and we got hit the same way. Cheap, just falling free. <laughs> I said, every year I said, guys, where's the bottom? <laughs> the bottom must yeah. be somewhere. And then the guys say, well, there is no bottom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. This is an interesting experience. If a company like us would have to depend on the North American market, we would be bust by now. Because we also had some internal issues, also with some strategic issues, how we would form. You see, we're still a young company, you know, and uh, if we wouldn't have cash available from generating lots of cash overseas in, uh, in the rest of the world and pouring it here in North America, if we would have to only live from what we uh, generate from here, poof, we would be dead by now. <laughs> if I can go back to Dan Butler for a moment, one of the cool things about these podcasts or we're, we're getting stories of, of the hard times a lot of them are in right now but stories where they they say there was a key supplier or a key dealer who stuck with us and helped us get through and it sounds like dan i know dan i've been up to his place it sounds like he may have been one of those people he was a great believer and sometimes I, I could not I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't understand why he still would believe in us but he was still would believe in us he was a great believer why was that why was he the believer he was I think it's his personality he has a good he has a good feeling for for if you work at something long enough and trust people that are at it and have passion that something will come out and in the way we have the same attitude I have the same attitude and then I'm not, uh, I don't never look at things for a short run. And then I'm, at the end of the day, this is, I formed many, many relationships and friendships, uh, business uh, friendships uh, over the years uh, based on trust, based on belief. So you mentioned Dan Butler, you mentioned the family that if they weren't funding you, probably wouldn't have been here 37 years later. I mean, the biggest support was family uh, by far, by far. And, um, well, out of families, one of my brothers uh, joined the business. Philip is uh, ten years or nine years younger than me. Uh, uh, in 1990, he's today the CEO of the company. If it wouldn't be for him, we wouldn't be as big as we are. So he's also a big driver of the company. But again, I call this the family. Huh? My wife also. She was a trading. I got stuck on the trading. First customer in France, trader in. <laughs> <laughs> She's also uh, part of the operational side of the business. That's Cornelia. Um, yeah. So my brother and my brother and my wife actually they run the business. They run the operational side of the business. Okay. So that way I get to travel and do things like I do today and do interviews mm -hmm. and talk to farmers and so on. But also you're asking the right question. 
uh, maybe give, have to give you a story that that probably can tell you uh, uh, again what we've looks like we've done right when the wall came down in East Germany back for the first first couple months in uh, 89 90 uh, I remember I was uh, going out and traveling to East Germany as soon as the wall came down and, and knocking on doors of uh, East German cooperatives you know and and very quickly you could build a relationship because those people they're all very interested in talking to you you know because they never had access never had access to West German equipment they never knew what was there because they never could travel you know they didn't if information wouldn't go wouldn't flowing so I remember um, I made my first deals with cooperative farms already in 1990 now 89 November 89 the wolf came down it was November and uh, say April April from April to August I sold quite a bit of equipment just on um, handshakes, handshake deals, because at that time it was just the, still the East German Deutschmark, the only means of payment, and there was no no such things like a plan how business would be legalized and so on. So you had to base, you only could do could do business with farmers that said. Uh, or cooperative directors that said to you, you know what, I like your piece of equipment. I think I can pay for it. Uh, but the only the only means of payment I have is East German Deutschmark. And the exchange rate today is one to three, but it's not legal yet. It's, it's anyway, it's just the way it goes. So what I did is I, 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 made, I made deals on one to three. Uh, East German Deutschmark, three East German Deutschmarks to one West German Deutschmark. And um, that was in, say, April, May, June, 1990. And I saw quite a bit of you, quite a bit of equipment. That, in those days, we were making also three-wheel three tractors as self-built seeders, you know. So when we sold the three-wheel uh, three tractors as a self-built seeder, that was 300,000 Deutschmark with the seeder. It was, those days, it was big money in Deutschmark. So it was almost a million East German mark. So I, we signed a piece of paper that said, okay, once we deliver it, we want 900,000 900, East German Deutschmark. But another six months later, by the end of 1990, uh, West Germany has agreed with the East German temporary government that the real exchange rate is one to two. So I had a couple deals done uh, where I actually was making quite a bit of money. So what I did is, I took this money, basically reconverted the one to three to one to two, two and said, okay, there's say on a 900,000 Deutschmark, East German Deutschmark deal, there's 300,000 Deutschmarks paid too much. So what I did is I basically sent the money back to the farms. And I had at least two or three occasions where the director of those farms were really mad at me because I sent the money back. I said, you know what? We have agreed with you that the, the, the ratio is one to three, not one to two, because we didn't know at that time. So it's my fault, not your fault. And then they sent the money back again to me. And I said, no, no. <laughs> and um, the interesting thing is those people, if they're still alive, they still remember it today. You were the one who actually didn't fool us. But there were so many other deals we did where we were fooled, overpaid and over exchange rated, you know, uh, because they also charged too much. Plus, they, they took the one, two, three and said, oh, it's your fault. Yeah? Mm -hmm. 
And um, so this kind of trust we've built with many, many people in East Germany, many cooperatives, they're still today, even there's the next generation in the management of those, of those farms, they still remember that their father who passed on the, 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 business, the business to their sons said, we still remember you guys. You were, the, you were one of the very few West German businessmen that did not fool us, that did not pull us over the table. And at that time, I tell you what, in those days, see, every single dollar a Deutschmark I needed. So it was not like I was sitting on money, you know. Yeah. I had an uncle of me, he, joined, he also was uh, helping me to run the business. He died last year and he was probably my best, uh, uh, um, how do you say? Um, Just Walter? Walter, um, mentor. Um, because th he was it actually that said, you know what, we have to give the money back. We cannot do this. Yeah. I didn't think much about it because I was had other things to do. He looked after the money more than I did, uh, and he said to me, "And well, we sat down together and he said, what are we going to do?" And he said, "You know what? We'll have to give the money back. It's not right. It's not right. We cannot fool these people because it's they, those people. Those people are we fool them." How many total? Oh, it was millions. It was millions. It was millions in Deutsch in East German Deutschmarks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, that's amazing we, we sent that yeah I, and, I, uh, but that i bet that story gets told through the generation still here today we still here today it goes it goes uh, through but this is our attitude not only with these channel farmers this is our attitude channel with customers yeah. and so all those early customers that we had to have cash up front uh before we started building a piece of equipment otherwise we couldn't buy the steel you know and then the machine went bust you know, after two years, not after one year. And one year we gave warranty. So after two years, uh, well, we said we could have said, sorry, warranty is over, it's your fault. No, we still went back and changed the frames and whatsoever. We still do it today, by the way. Uh, this is another thing we do uh, with all our customers. We are known for that. We're known for that, that uh, once warranty is over, we're known for that, that when things become serious, you know, sometimes you have a, a problem with frames or, 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 or electric motor, like, like we, did, we, have a deal, we have a deal with electric motors here with planters, you know. Uh, uh, farmers didn't even know that, that there was a problem with it, you know. Even though the machines were three years old, even though it cost us millions, it doesn't matter. And, uh, but farmers always, always remember that. If things are just, it's our fault, you know, we haven't really engineered it right and we've, we, should have, we should have known better. Even after two years or three years, we go back and say, haven't you listened? Um, now we're almost 2,000 people employed and so on, and we have lots of managers, we have lots of different businesses, we have six different factories all over the world. Now, what we tell our people is, the most important is that we continue to do what we always did. When I started 40 years ago, 37 years ago, we have to be as close as possible to the customer. That's what counts, nothing else. And if you try, if you close, you know, in close, to being close to the customer doesn't mean that you have lots of field demonstrations and calls on them with your, with your territory managers and talk about new machinery and whatever. No. Is what did we talk this evening? Was there a single piece of equipment we talked mm -hmm. about? But the intention was there. Mm -hmm. I've heard that about you. Uh, when you take the podium, you're not going to be talking about trying to sell a piece of equipment. Uh, very rarely I do that. Very rarely. I'm very bad at this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to figure out where you are today, you got about 2,000 employees. You said six different factories. Well, we have three large factories in Germany which we're doubling right now in size, all, of the, all three of them. 
not knowing whether we ever will need them, but so far we always needed it <laughs> someday. <laughs> then we have, uh, well, we have a factory up in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because of the downturn in 2013 till today, obviously we're not, we're not yet there where we were in 2013, but it looks like we're getting there again. Um, then, uh, then we have a factory, which we just built another one in, in Russia last year. We finished it. Then we have one in Brazil, Curitiba. That one, that, that's that's fun. That 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 thing is fun, and because it's a small one, we start small and now growing it, growing the people. Uh, all manites, by the way. We only use manites in our factory in Brazil. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. Everybody asks us, why would you ever go to Brazil? We, I was in Brazil, lost so much money. All crooks, you cannot work with them. Everyone went out. How can you do it? Well. We have we have a, a workforce you can trust. Huh? Have a, exactly, a work, our, our language is German, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I can have a workforce I can trust, and everybody's selected them. Yeah. And where else? Where well, we have a small place in China which has started manufacturing wise, and then we have what we call marketing centers, just like we're building this down site now. We have France, Germany, Czech Republic, Ukraine, Russia, Downs, six right now. And we're looking at one in Brazil right now. We're looking, well, actually, we're building, we're together with our dealer now, we're building one uh, uh, in Australia. It's always farming based. Our marketing center is always the farm, is the, it starts out with a farm, even though it's a small farm, it starts out with a farm. Those marketing centers are like this. Very similar. I call it demo farms, demo research, call okay. it them. We have a big plan here. At least I have a big plan. <laughs> So the the annual turnover for Horsch as a whole is 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 what in U.S. dollars? dollars yeah, more today? like six hundred now. Really? Wow! You grew twenty percent or we, something. We just we grew from two thousand till today. We grew by twenty five fold. Just the last eighteen years, yeah. And we keep growing. It's just I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You're gonna have to stick with this manufacturing thing now. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, things are going. See, see we are, uh, I think, in, in seeding. If it, I, I think the only competitor we have right now by revenue is John Deere. In seeding, planting, if it comes to large planters, seeding, large planters, and minimum tillage. We only have John Deere in front of us by revenue. Everybody else we've passed in these segments. Mm-hmm. There's one question you cannot answer, ask me because uh, many, many, many times before his people asked me that whether we are for sale, we're not for sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Frank Lesseter from No-Till Farmer, which is the original publication in Lesseter Ag Media's portfolio. If you're interested in the best of what farmers are doing in soil health, fertility, cover crops, and a variety of seeding and planting innovations, you want to check out our No-Till Farmer podcast. You can search No-Till Farmer on your favorite podcast station to subscribe to this informative twice-a-month podcast. Now back to Mike and the How We Did It podcast. As you get around here in the, in the United States, do the dealers know that you have this enormous worldwide presence and the resources to... I'm afraid not yet. That's why we're, that's another reason why I'm spending so much time myself and my brother also here. Mm-hmm. You know? And when I'm here, I'm traveling. How often are you, are you over here? 
Last year was four or five times. But the thing is, when I'm here, what am I doing? Because I don't see much dealers. I was out with people, farmers, Farmer. farmers, farmers, farmers. Mm -hmm. I hired a plane and I do this twice in Brazil. Brazil is, it's just like it. The northern Brazil is just, oh, it's exciting. It's exciting what's going on there, you know. And um, to get around, I, I hire Pilatus, you know, for about 10 days. And uh, the, the nice thing is all those farmers have runways, you know. Mm -hmm. Some of them have paved runways, you know. So you can't even, so you know, I just go there from one farm to another farm by plane. And that way you get around quick, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So when you, Bruce or Jeremy, say, hey, we got someone, dealer, who's shown some interest, seem like it's time to, to, for them to meet you, what's your elevator pitch? What's your close to them on why they should do business with you? Well, i quick to show this to you. If this is the customer, this is the dealer, and this is the manufacturer, that's me, mm -hmm. this is the classic lineup especially larger manufacturers work with customers and dealers. But the manufacturer always says to the dealer, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get you covered with product. If you're big enough, I only want uh, it's just uh, one line, you know, like the greens and the reds and the yellows, and give you any support you need and finance support, but the relationship with the customer is yours. I may once in a while walk with you and listen to the customer, but the relation is yours. See, when I started my business, selling with a spade the only relationship that worked was the direct relationship and a dealer was not ever think about trying to selling with a spade come on I don't, i'm not in this business i'm selling iron not digging holes in the dirt and digging holes in the ground so anyway so when we started to grow bigger and bigger um, and realized that we we cannot just direct sell at the end we have to get out of direct selling because we need somebody else in there to do the service part, to do the used equipment part, and help us actually taking care about the customer. Then we had to bring in the, the, the dealer from the site. So what we ended up with is a triangle relationship. And that triangle relationship, together with education and marketing, if Dan Butler would, be on, would tell you the truth is, this is mo more money to him than this. But it's also more work for this guy. And that's the problem. The classic iron salesman doesn't understand that. So he has to learn it. And if he's not willing to learn with us, and learning means investing in us, investing in us, not only time and, 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 and brain power, also money, he will never learn it. And so this, this is, it's, 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 a, it's, an, it's not an easy relationship, I tell you. It's, 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 it takes a long time to develop it. But if you would travel Western, Western Europe and I get you in contact with some of my key leaders, they're the longest with us. They all will tell you, I make more money with the horse product on this side than with anything else I sell. I don't need shareholder value. Right. This is not what, they, they are driven by shareholder value. And so they, at the end of the day, they cannot just uh, try to make uh, deals where they allow us a, a fast-growing shortliner uh, to, to basically try to, to control from the shortline side their dealerships because um, that's what we did. Because through this strong marketing, we we, we start to control, uh, but the, the dealer would allow the control because he's making more money. <laughs> so, so it's a give and take. It's a give and take thing. You know? At the end of the day, uh, we bring to the table. 
but it's something you can hardly explain. You have to live through it. You have to live it yourself. And first it starts with, a, with an investment. And if, you, if you're not ready for this investment, you better don't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you better stay away from Horsch because I would say we are headache. To start working mm-hmm. with us, we're headaches. Just imagine you had a new dealer uh, prospect sitting in a meeting like this, this this evening and not seeing a single picture about a horse machinery. What are they doing here? This is too complicated for me. No, I want to sell iron. Why is this? No, I don't want this. No, this is not, I don't want to be in this. Yeah? Yeah. And um, this is not very easy for us. Once we are established, like if you go to Western Europe, you know, getting rid of John Deere dealerships. If somebody finds out that we're getting kicking a John Deere dealership out, do you think we have to go out and try to find dealers? They're queuing up. Mm-hmm. Right. They're all queuing up. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was quick. It was a very quick change. Right. You know? And then, they, then guess what? Those John Deere dealerships told John Deere. You know? mm-hmm. I said, what did you do to Horsch? Now we are losing him. Now we're losing business. Yeah. Because now it's Klaus, now it's, 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 it's Case, it's Echo dealers. Now he's, he's controlling my, 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 through this horse uh, people, through this education marketing his customer. And you'll see, we're going to lose tractors and combines. Yeah? Question about um, different markets. I know you're on every major ag producing continent here, it sounds like. Yes, are we you, are. are. Yes, you? we are. That, that's probably another, another, another advantage we have. We are personally, not as a business, personally. Wearing the, the, the horse machine hat, are you doing business any different with your dealers here in the United States as you are in Australia or, or Brazil, or, or is it, I yeah. guess... Yeah, well, first of all, we have no problem with that. We bring dealers actually together on a worldwide mm-hmm. basis, but we would deal with them differently according to, to the scenarios uh, they're in and comparative uh, scenario they're in. Then when it comes to this triangle thing, that we want to establish that everywhere. We don't necessarily have it everywhere yet. This is part of the reason. This is another thing. I need this place here. This, is, this, this, mar- this education marketing place is, a, is, is, is one piece I need to build this. Yeah? Because if I didn't have that, I'm, I'm more or less dancing around like this all the time, you know. And this is what I don't want. This is all you do here is selling discount at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And the farmer basically says, okay, that's all I want and give me a good service. And if not, you're out. Yeah. This is relationship, not discount. By the way, they also understand education marketing, mm-hmm. by the way. It's just lo- it's just it's a coincidence that we happen to buy yeah. this off them and get them to know a little bit more, and they get they they also get us to know a little bit more in learning that we have lots in common. Mm-hmm. Very interesting company. Reading his book right now. Darren and I were there in Indiana, what a month ago. Sonny's book. Sonny's book. Yeah, mm-hmm. reading, they gave us one one of those. Oh. And reading it. Oh. We're going to do some other European ones, but for this podcast, I think that the American dealers all know their what what it's like to be an American dealer. What I think is interesting is if you could tell me what it's like being a global manufacturer breaking into the U.S. market and what a dealer doesn't have any clue of what it's like to, to penetrate a, a market like this? First of all, this is not a new market for me. I mean, going back to my early roots, it goes back to 40 years of mm-hmm. knowing, was more or less understanding, uh, or 
been very interested what's going on in the agricultural world here in the central uh, in the central US. Uh, so for me, it's probably it's probably the least uh, uh, complicated to understand your mentality, to understand the, the way you sh I should talk to you, and what you're interested in, what you're not interested in. And what I also uh, knew that if I bring one-to-one -one Western European equipment here, uh, and it's not Americanized, I'm probably not always successful. Will not be successful. This is what my some of my buddies uh, they're trying to also come here and bring straight Europeanized equipment here. They realize that farmers, you know, it starts with folding. You know how you fold things. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how can I explain it to you? You see, we Europeans have this stupid law that everything has to stay within 10 feet. Yeah. Uh, so now everything we fold, we fold down to 10 feet. Some of those machines, especially when they're 40 foot wide and we're folding down to 10 feet, behind a tractor with triple wheels or a healing tractor, looks funny this I mean what's the sense of having something 10 foot wide and being and being unstable because it's narrow and falls over and you know? just doesn't look right for American the way American farmer looks at equipment you know it doesn't make sense uh, so, so you have to have this 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 taste your taste is different yeah uh, your taste is different like what we what our taste is what we've trained how we train our, our, our farmers over there in Europe or in Eastern Europe you know it's interesting the Eastern European guys you know we have in Russia and Ukraine we have scenarios like here in, in the Corn Belt you know big big farms wide rows or roads you know so they could easily buy a North American equipment they should only buy North American equipment but they don't why because they look so much into the Western, Euro Western European side, so they get more the taste from the Western European side. The taste. You know? mm. Equipment has also a taste. Look at the cars. The cars, a BMW or a Mercedes car here, that's built here in your North America looks different than in, in Europe. Because you have a different taste. Mm. What do you want to see? How, how, how things have to look and, and so on. This is, in farm machinery, it's very important. And if you want to change the taste of an American farmer, you got to be careful. Looks mm -hmm. is looks. Things have to look right, and you have to understand that. Uh, when I say that, obviously, I had dealt with this taste for four years, mm -hmm. you know? and that's why I decided right away I have to be, have to have a factory here, have to have engineering engineering site to to basically make sure that we get that taste right. Yes, we have some products now we bring over one to one from from Germany, yeah, from Europe. Because they are built to American taste. <laughs> there. But there's certain other equipment which I would, would not want to bring here because it's just the taste is not right. We've gotten to know dealers in every, every country. What is it that is unique about the American market that, or the psyche or mindset of the American dealer that may be different than other places? Generally speaking, the American dealers are in many ways more professional than European dealers, especially when it comes to service, when it comes to trading, when it comes to parts availability. That this is the, those three things, the focus. You know, a European dealer, you, you have the classic farm machinery dealer that's, that has more or less a supermarket approach, you know. He has maybe one main brand, but then, then he just sells anything he can sell. I mean, he has a couple different short liners, inline competition, like you wouldn't believe, you know, uh, and so on. 
that's what the North American dealer actually, even if even though he's allowed to do it, he's very careful doing it. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what we're looking for also. We're not interested in dealers that uh, that love a sh short line, uh, uh, inline competition. And obviously, and that's a good thing about uh, the likes of Deer and Case and New Holland and so on and Echo, that because of this full line approach, you know, uh, they challenge they challenge the dealer skills uh, and also educate the dealers to do that. That's a good side of that. And you don't find that much anywhere else in the world. Maybe a little bit in Australia you find that attitude, but not, yeah, but that's about it. We try to educate and uh, and obviously now the, the main the echoes and the classes and the deers anyway in, in Europe, in Western Europe, they're now trying to more and more educate their dealers in terms of having those skills, better, having better skills in those three areas. But it's they're better here. Is it harder to get a dealer signed up here than other parts of the world? In a way, yes. Uh, um, first of all, if they, if they don't know who we are, they look at us. Uh, see, I'll give you another interesting story. <laughs> In Canada, last year, there was my guys were taking me out in northern Saskatchewan. That's the end of the world for you guys. You know, hardly anybody lives up there except a couple of bears and, and, and wolves and so on. And uh, here's this short line dealer. I don't know what he sells. He sells Argentinian headers and uh, uh, and a few this and that. And um, and anyway, they signed him up. Hasn't sold much of our equipment yet. And. Our, our territory sales guy has asked that dealer because he took me around and says, you know, my closure is coming into your, uh, please make sure that we're going to see a few of your cust key customers because he only wants us to talk to customers. So I don't spend much time, a couple of minutes in the dealership and then we take off. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I guess I was introduced to the owner of the company, uh, a small company, 20 people employed, probably $10 million revenue or so. And anyway, then his sales guy took took us out to the to the first customer. And so what I did is I hopped into his car. I had my guy following in his pickup, and I hopped in. And I was, I was, while we were going out, this fifty miles or sixty miles to this customer, I was sitting next to this to this sales guy from this dealership. And I got to talk to him, and I said, "How much do you know about us?" He looked at me and said, yeah, I know you're a European company. I heard about it. They sold a few compact discs here. And uh, I think you're also selling Cedars. Uh, I'm not so sure. He hasn't, hasn't had much training yet from us. So let's say. Then I kind of, I got a little bit mad at him. And I said, Makes, first of all, the owner didn't have time to, fall, to come with me because he had better things to do than to come with me to see his customer. This is something that doesn't go down, go down with me very well. You know? And then I said to him, how big do you think we are? Uh, because like he has many, he, he probably has to sell many different short lines in his thing. I uh, start guessing 10, 20 million dollars and so on. And I said, you know that I own the company, yes. We're, what, what would you think if we're more like 500 million plus? And he was killing him the thing. What is this? And he was like going like, oh. Uh, then all of a sudden his, 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 his mood, his thing changed. You know, he was concentrating on the road and he was not, it just, 
you could realize, you could say, for him, I was just another short liner, another headache, another one who wants to sell his equipment, and now he's trying to talk me into this and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I have a customer here. Let's see if I can sell something. And my boss, okay, yeah, he's on other things as well, and blah, blah, blah. So it makes me mad. Mm-hmm. You know? This makes me mad in one way and another way. You know? And here I am, personally, uh, going out there and... Uh, and, and, and traveling with, with the guys, with the, with, the, with the local dealer guys and want to see the customers. And then they, they see me, how I'm talk to, talk, talking to, to farmers and so on, you know. And uh, sometimes they understand what's going on. Sometimes they get bored because we hardly don't talk machinery with the farmers as well, you know. Then I say, guys, well, no, we'll never, we're not, probably never going to get to a triangle relationship. It happens quite often. It happens quite often. This mom pop dealerships, you call them here, you know. And uh, they're just overstuffed with all kinds of different short liners, you know, and uh, they, would, they haven't got a clue for this. You know. If you try to tell them this, they look at you and say, what is this? Is this a new animal? What are you trying to tell me here? This looks like comp. This looks like headache. Well, he's right. It looks like headache. No wonder he's selling out pretty soon. No wonder they're all selling out. In a way, I'm not a good salesman for, for dealers, as well, dealers as well. I can scare off dealers as, as well as I can attract dealers because I say, guys, be very careful working with us. Mm-hmm. It's a long journey. It's a rough journey. It's an, it could be an expensive journey, but not always necessarily a, a, a win-win journey. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not understanding what we're trying to do here, this is not going to take us very far. Thanks to Michael for his story, and also to, to Daniel Fulton for giving us his farm office well into the wee hours of the night, when he still had presentations and logistics to complete for the demos the following day. Thanks, Daniel. And also thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our travels in production time for these recordings. For more, visit www.osmondson.com. And thanks to Joe Kinsley, who pared down more than two hours of conversation into this podcast for you. Appreciate it, Joe. For you, thanks for joining us today. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.